College football is back, and Walters is the place to be in D.C., be it the SEC, ACC, Big Ten, or whatever the heck we're calling the Big 12 right now. The 30-plus televisions at Walters have you covered. This weekend's marquee games include Alabama-Miami, Penn State-Wisconsin, and a big early-season matchup between Clemson and Georgia. Make your reservations over at waltersdc.com slash reservations now. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yes, and Stevenson's running the pitch. Line to right center field. Nibble coming on. Here's the one-two. Swing a line drive, base hit, left field, over the leaping key boom, down the line, headed to the corner. Alonzo will score. Conforto racing around third. He's being waved home. Escobar up with a relay throw to the plate, the slide, and he's in there safely. The ball gets by the backstop, and over to third goes Kevin Pillar. It's a two-run double, and the Mets have plated three and lead five to two. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, September 4th, 2021. Happy Labor Day weekend to everyone, along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Another roller coaster affair for the Nationals on Friday night, and ultimately another loss, a uh, 6-2-10 inning loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park in Game 1 of a five-game series. Yeah, get used to seeing the Mets for a few days. The Mets are about to be the uh, house guests who won't leave. Uh, the Nets offense basically did nothing for eight innings, then came a two-run ninth off Mets closer Edwin Diaz, and then came Austin Voth giving up four runs, three earned in the top of the 10th inning. Nats have dropped six straight, now are 23 games below 500 at 55 and 78. But as we like to say, it's not about the outcomes of these games, it's about the potential building blocks in these games. And this was another game in which there was a lot to like. Riley Adams, Luis Garcia, Lane Thomas, Patrick Murphy. And we got drama. Andrew Stevenson, a headfirst flip off a collision with the Mets catcher, Chan Sisko, in a route to scoring the game-tying run in the bottom of the ninth inning during a game in which Davey Martinez was on crutches. This could have been quite the dramatic ending or at least a major moment in a Nationals win on Friday night, Mark. So to take you guys behind the scenes, Al, because I was doing TV for this game, I was down in the President's Club in the second row because I've got to be ready in case they walk it off to be on the field to do an interview and hopefully not get doused with Gatorade. So I had a front row seat literally to that play at the plate. And oh my God, to see that up close, that was something. It was pretty scary looking and you hope the chance Cisco is all right. But Andrew Stevenson is a gamer, first of all. He's not going to let that get in his way. Second of all, it's a perfectly legal, clean play. The throw took Cisco into the runner. You are allowed to do that. I know people ask because they remember a few years back when MLB banned catcher collisions. But that is strictly you cannot run over the catcher when he has the ball and is blocking your path to the plate. And that was not the case here. If the throw takes him into the runner, all's fair game. So that was something. And in that moment, I'm thinking winning run on third, you just got to get him home with one out. I'm thinking they're going to pull this off. And then as soon as they didn't, you kind of had that sinking feeling of what are the odds they're going to be able to hold the Mets down in the top of the 10th? And then what are the odds they're going to be able to come back and score in the bottom of the 10th? And sure enough, it got pretty ugly after that. 
Yeah, it did. That was not a pretty top of the 10th inning, to be sure. But that was some moment for Andrew Stevenson. Collides with Cisco, flips over headfirst, and then has the presence of mind to scamper back to home plate on his stomach to slap home plate for the run. That was just such a great visual. We don't get, obviously, home plate collisions often anymore. But, you know, this Nats season, right, we haven't had many moments like that in a game in which the Nats had not done much offensively. To have a moment like that late in the game, great to see that. Nats Park, it felt like for so much of the night, was waiting for a reason to erupt. The Nats get to Diaz again. The ballpark erupts. And then, of course, comes the rest of the game. I mentioned Davey Martinez. So he recently underwent a procedure on crutches, basically isn't moving as he's watching the game in the dugout. Uh, has he doing? What exactly did he have done to him? So we don't have exact details, but it was an ankle surgery. And according to him, it was turned out to be a little more serious or the procedure, I guess, was a little more complicated than initially thought. He had it scheduled all along for Thursday morning, which was supposed to be an off day. And the idea was he'd go get the thing done, would be fine. And by the next day, he'd be good to go. Well, they had a game yesterday, the makeup game after the rainout. So he was in the ballpark, but was still, you know, recovering from the surgery. So he watched from his office on TV while Tim Bogar managed. But then today, you know, he's feeling fine, but he's not moving around real well because of it. He had kind of the air cast going on his leg. So he made his way to the dugout and then plopped down on one of the benches, put his foot up and didn't move all night. And I'm sure for him, that's a tough thing because he's a guy who moves around. He wants to be really involved. And, you know, couldn't make the pitching changes. We were all wondering what happens if uh, there's a controversial play and he's got to come out and argue with the umpire. Could he do it or not? So without knowing exact details here, I'm, I'm guessing it may still be a little while till he recovers. But, you know, he's good. He's able to play or may be able to manage. Sorry, nothing like that. But just a strange, strange thing. And I mean, you mentioned how close they were. So this was the two year anniversary of the famous comeback against the Mets and Edwin Diaz with the Kurt Suzuki home run, the great call by Charlie and Dave. Kurt Suzuki has done it again! Bang! Zoom goes Suzuki! It's one of the wins of the year! And if you walked out of this ballpark when the Mets scored five runs in the top of the ninth inning, you The crowd was like waiting for something. Like you said, they were into it all night. It was a good crowd. And the ninth inning's happening and people are into it. And it felt like, you know, a big game. I know it's a bigger game for the Mets than for the Nats. But I feel like even for the Nats, these are big games for them because for all these young players, they're kind of sick and tired of battling. They want to win one of these. I know we talk about the wins and losses don't really matter, but it's wearing on them because they're not getting blown out. They're in every one of these games. Every single night, they have a chance to do one more thing and win the game. They want to start winning these. And so I think it's actually hurting them a little more than you might imagine under the circumstances. They're ready to start winning some of these close games. Oh, yeah. I mean, for them, they're certainly allowed to feel however they want to feel. I just know for me, you know, watching the team, rooting for the team, observing the team, I'm not invested in the outcomes, but that's me. Like everyone's allowed to sort of feel how they want to feel about this. I I just don't think the outcomes matter that much. With Edwin Diaz, just as an aside, boy, has he been a bust for the Mets over these last few years. I know saves aren't everything. This is now 16 blown saves for Edwin Diaz with the Mets over the last three seasons. And remember that trade that the Mets made? They gave up one of the top prospects in baseball to the Seattle Mariners. Get back Robinson Cano, who's been a flop. And Edwin Diaz largely has been a bust. And the Nats, it feels like, have gotten to Diaz so many times over these last three years. Get to him again on Friday night. Yeah, you almost feel like Luis Rojas would have been better off using Juris Familia in the ninth. The Nats have more trouble with Familia, as you saw in the 10th, than with Diaz. And it's funny because it's not like there's many guys left who faced him in the past. These are all new hitters, aside from, you know, Soto and Zim, maybe. But it almost like a feeling of confidence when facing him. I mean, Soto, how often do we see Soto go after the first pitch like that and drive it the way he did for the the leadoff home run to get things started? That obviously perked everybody up. Zimmerman walked it. But I mean, Riley Adams, let's talk about this kid because more and more, I mean, he looks like he knows how to hit big league pitching. And that was a fantastic at bat, driving a ball to the opposite field gap to bring home Stevenson for the tying run. And then also the presence of mind on his part to take third base on the tail end of that. There was a play a week or two ago where he singled 
And there's a play at the plate, and he stayed at first base and didn't advance to second. That kind of cost them. And I wonder if he somebody spoke to him about it or he maybe realized it himself. And he was much more aware of it this time and able to take the extra base, which, you know, put himself in position to win the game and they just couldn't get him home. So I think there are a few things to get into here with Riley Adams. He was an at starting catcher, a number six batter on Friday night. Like you said, the guy can hit. That is as clear as can be. He gets on base four times in this game, goes two for two with a double, a single, a walk, and a hit by pitch. The hit that he had in that Nationals two-run ninth inning, a game-tying, one-out, opposite field RBI double to the right center field gap off Edwin Diaz on an 0-2 pitch. And then scoring from first is Andrew Stevenson in that dramatic moment. Adams in the game also with a one-out single in the bottom of the seventh. He had a one-out five-pitch walk in the bottom of the fifth. He had a two-out hit-by-pitch in the bottom of the second. He threw out a runner on an attempted steal, goes one and two on runners trying to steal. But that was some throw that Adams made to get the runner trying to steal. Adams throwing out Jonathan Villar on an attempted steal of second base for the second out in the top of the ninth inning. Soto, a step or so toward the line and right. Runner goes, big jump. Throw by Adams. The tag he is out at second base. Oh, Villar looked like he had a great jump and... He's in shock. What a throw by Riley Adams to Alcides Escobar. And Adams made the throw off making a nice backhanded catch of a low pitch in the dirt from Ryan Harper. I thought that that was impressive. Riley Adams, of all of the newcomers for the Nats here since the sell-off, I mean, Josiah Gray probably has been the most impressive, but you could make the case for Riley Adams, especially considering the circumstance now. Kbert Ruiz clearly is the Nats' number one catcher, at least in the moment. But interestingly to me, Adams gets the start on Friday night, and all Adams continues to do is hit. Riley Adams with the Nationals, 370 batting average, 482 on base, 609 slugging. I don't think I have to remind people the Nats traded Brad Hand to Toronto to get Adams. Hand DFA'd by Toronto this week, and interestingly, he was warming up in the bullpen for the Mets on Friday night as the Mets claimed him off waivers from the Blue Jays on Thursday. Were you surprised that Riley Adams got the start in this game? We figured he'd play this weekend with the five games in four days, but game one of the series, Riley Adams is in that starting catcher. Yeah, I was a little surprised by that. Obviously, you knew he was going to catch one of the two games on Saturday and then probably another one at some point this weekend. By catching the first game, obviously, he's going to catch probably the nightcap, I guess, on Saturday with Ruiz catching the first game. Now, maybe Ruiz can then catch each day after that because they're all day games. So there's no quick turnaround. So maybe the idea here was three day games, two night games. Let's have Adams catch the night games and Ruiz catch the day games. Maybe that's what it is. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, I was a little surprised. I figured it'd go the other way around where Ruiz starts Friday night, Adams Saturday morning, Ruiz Saturday night, Adams Sunday morning, and then back to Ruiz. But uh, I'm sure they have their reasons for it. But To get back to that one, you know, Josiah Gray came into this with expectations because he was the premier prospect along with Caber Ruiz in the blockbuster trade of all of the moves that went down. You know, Riley Adams was a little bit of an afterthought. We didn't really know much about him. It was more like, oh, hey, they got the Blue Jays to take Brad Hand and you got maybe a a backup catching prospect for him. Okay, good. And then he comes in and all he's done since has been really impressive, starting with the uh, ninth inning home run in Atlanta that flipped the game and everything he's done since has been so impressive. And look, Obviously, Ruiz has the reputation, and they are focused on him as being the future starter there, and he's going to get a whole lot of playing time. But that's not set in stone. It doesn't have to be that way, and you never know who's going to pan out and who doesn't. And if Riley Adams keeps hitting like this and shows that he can get the job done behind the plate like he did in this one, he's going to find his way in there, whether it's catching, whether it's maybe at first base at some point, maybe as DH, depending on what happens next year with that. He's going to have a future here if he keeps doing this. and. One other point to all that, we kind of scoffed the other day about Alex Avila being activated. Well, you saw tonight why there's a little bit of benefit to that. Having the third catcher on your bench allowed David to pinch hit Ruiz. Uh, I think it was the fifth inning that he came up to pinch hit. And then you still have a backup catcher in case anything goes wrong. And they can do that the other way as well. Adams might be able to pinch hit now as well. So yeah, it's a small thing, but I think it does you know, help at least a little bit as they're trying to evaluate all these guys and give them as many opportunities as possible. 
Yeah, K. Barrett in that uh, pinch hitting spot on Friday night, popping out to the Mets second baseman, Javier Baez, with runners on second and third, two outs in the bottom of the fifth inning. So Adams continues to hit, doing a great job. Lane Thomas continues to hit. He got on base two more times on Friday night. He was again the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter, one for four with a single and a walk. Uh, The single, by the way, coming on an 0-2 pitch to begin the bottom of the first inning. So Adams with a double on an 0-2 pitch. Lane Thomas with a single on an 0-2 pitch. Thomas bottom of the sixth drawing a leadoff five-pitch walk. It was good to see Luis Garcia have two doubles on Friday night. He has not hit particularly well. It may be that he's just not a great hitter, but especially off those defensive boo-boos in the previous game, some good hitting from Luis Garcia on Friday night. Not necessarily great base running, but Luis Garcia, bottom of the third, a leadoff double of Mets starter Rich Hill to right field just inside the right field line. And then Garcia, bottom of the fifth, a two-out first pitch double off Hill to right field. Luis, in that plate appearance, doing a great job of turning on an inside pitch. But as we've seen with Luis Garcia, it's not always so simple. And he has that leadoff double in the bottom of the third. He then gets officially caught stealing in an attempt to steal a third base for the second out. But what basically happened was he took off for third before Rich Hill delivered the pitch. So Garcia got caught in a rundown and ended up getting tagged out. Garcia trying to take off for third, but Hill hasn't picked off. Runs at him, chasing him, chasing him towards second, pump fake. Throws off to Baez, who chases him toward third. Baez flips to VR, who applies the tag. And Luis Garcia is picked off with the pickoff caught stealing going one, four, five. And Garcia hearing it a bit from the crowd. We'd love to sing the praises of Luis Garcia, and we should to an extent. Two doubles in a game is nothing to scoff at. But another moment where you're like, Luis, we know you're young, but that's not the kind of thing you can be doing. So we haven't done one of these in a while, but I've got to make an official ruling. That was a toot plan, Al. That was absolutely a toot bland thrown out on the bases like a income poop. No excuse for it. You can't leave second that early and was thrown out. And, you know, it, it killed a potential rally there. And the other one was, you know, when he was the automatic runner in the 10th inning and it's a four run game and all of a sudden Familia tried to pick him off or he threw back to second base. And you're like, what are they doing? They're trying to catch a 21 year old off guard and steal an out there. So other teams are noticing that he's a little careless out there. And he's got to clean that up real quick. Those are things that have to be done. There was also in the uh, first inning, another base running mistake, Lane Thomas on first base running on the pitch, drive to deep center that's caught. He has to turn around and go back to first and he missed second base on the way back. And just looking at it from afar, it looked like not that he just missed the base, but that he didn't know he had to touch the base. Swung on and hit in the air to right center field. Long run for Nimmo, and he makes the catch. Uh-oh, Thomas has to retouch at second, but Nimmo threw the ball to second as Thomas is racing back to first and able to get there. But Thomas did not retouch. He's going to be out. He's going to be out. He did not retouch. Base. He did not retouch. And that's a big no-no. I mean, you have to know that from a very young age. So there are still some things being taught up here that shouldn't be have to be taught at the big league level. These are things that need to be learned at a younger age at a lower level of baseball. And unfortunately, some of these young players are still having to learn that. So that's the negatives. Now with Garcia, what's weird is he's hitting lefties. He's hitting 333 off lefties and slugging over 500 against them. He's not hitting righties under 200 against them for some reason. And I don't know why that is, except to say that it's not just a small sample size because he had good numbers against lefties at AAA as well. So this isn't just, you know, over the course of 20 at-bats here in the big leagues. It's happened uh, consistently all year long. So, I mean, that's good. You want him to do well against lefties, but he's got to start figuring this out against righties if he's going to prove that he's ready to be an everyday player up here. Yeah, and you always rather a guy hit righties than lefties if you have to pick one because, like, 75% of the pitching in the majors is right-handed pitching. The greatest ninth-inning comeback in Nationals history completed on the third career walk-off homer for Kurt Suzuki, his first since 2008. And he got a fastball, grooved at 100 miles an hour, and it left faster than that. This team is truly amazing. Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington National Stars today. 
Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. Hey, NatChat listeners, Tim Shovers, producer of this podcast here. If you can indulge us for just one second, the five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other platforms, oddly enough, through the back-end business of podcasting are really important. So if you could do us a favor, just go on, give us a review, give us a rating. Hopefully it's uh, at the high end of the spectrum. would be really appreciated. And thanks for all the support throughout the season when it comes to listening and interacting with us and downloading and reviewing. All of that is extremely appreciated as I speak on behalf of Mark and Al. Now back to the show here on Nats Chat Podcast. <laughs> We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And Diaz delivers. Soto swings and skies over the year. Deep down the left field line to the corner. Pilar going back at the wall. He leaps and it is caught on the first pitch to Juan Soto. are on the scoreboard bang zoom goes soto with his 24th home run of the year like we said it was not a great night for the nats offensively until that ninth inning Nats, even with the ninth inning finished the game with two runs on six hits over 10 innings all cds escobar went 0 for 5. Josh Bell, your starting left fielder, by the way, 0 for 4 in the game. Ryan Zimmerman, 0 for 3 with a walk and a couple of strikeouts. Carter Keeboom, 0 for 4 with a strikeout, left four men on base. The Nats were in danger of being shut out in this game. I didn't realize this until Friday night. The Nats have the longest active streak in the majors in terms of not being shut out. The Nats enter this game on Friday night having gone 73 consecutive games without a shutout loss. It sort of looked like the Nats were steamrolling toward a shutout loss. And then came Juan Soto. He got things going in that two-run ninth inning, smashing a first-pitch leadoff opposite field homer off Edwin Diaz to cut the Nats' deficit to 2-1. The homer going a mere 349 projected feed for StatCast. This was not a uh, Schwarbian clout from Juan Soto, but it was a homer. It was a big moment. It seemed to awaken the crowd, and it was great to see that. Now, also with Juan, was a bad defensive moment for him in this game on Friday night. In a Mets one-run third, he took a bizarro route and ultimately doesn't catch a high fly ball in shallow right. The play turning into a two-out first pitch RBI bloop triple by Pete Alonso for a 2-0 Mets lead. Here's the pitch. Alonzo skies one to right, shallow toward the line, trucking over is Soto. This ball slicing could be trouble. Soto reaches, can't get it, it lands. Soto overruns the ball, so headed home is Nimmo, and Alonzo is on his way to third with a stand-up triple. A, you don't think about triples when you think about Pete Alonso, but B, how often do you see something like that? A bloop triple, but that's exactly what that ended up being. Look, Juan Soto's done a good job defensively overall on the season. You're going to have a handful of bad moments uh, defensively, even if you're a good glove guy. That was not a great one for Soto, but the homer was great, and uh, it got the Nats going there offensively in that ninth inning. Yeah, I was glad to see the home run, and like we said, how often is he that aggressive on the first pitch to do that? So who cares if it scrapes the wall? He'll take it. And that got the crowd going again. On the defensive play, it was a weird one. He had a long way to run. He was shaded over to the gap and had to try to not only get to the line, but also come in on it. But what I thought was so strange was as soon as the ball goes in the air, his first step, he starts running and he puts his head down. Like he's chugging because it's almost like he realizes I got too far to go to even get to this. I just got to run there as fast as I can. And in doing so, takes his eye off the ball and the route that he took was off. 
he's taking too steep of an angle and the ball was traveling a little bit deeper. And so it ends up a circuitous route. The uh, expected batting average on that blooper, Al, was 020. Oh. Not very good. Not very good. You got to be able to get to that one. So yeah, that cost them. There were a lot of little things in this game. They did not do well. And these are things that, again, you understand a young team, sometimes you're going to make some of these mistakes, but they've got to be better at some of these things that are not big league mistakes. These are minor league mistakes. These are less than minor league mistakes. They've got to get better at that stuff. And I would say soon. Uh, one thing with Juan defensively, he came into the game on Friday, plus five defensive runs saved on the season in right field. That's quite good. And and that's not over a tiny sample side. That's over 961 in the third inning. So like I said, you're going to have some bad moments, but that was not a good moment. That's another example, too, of why errors are not what you look at. There's no error on that play, and yet that was not a good defensive play at all. That's not a triple for Pete Alonso, but he ends up getting a triple there. So with what happened in the uh, top of the 10th inning, Austin Voth pitching. You know, the Nats bullpen was really good in this game until Austin Voth. He comes into the game. He ends up allowing four runs, three earned in the top of the 10th on a double, two singles, two walks, one of which was intentional. Now, the Nationals earlier in the day reinstated their closer, Kyle Finnegan, from the paternity list. There also was another move I want to get to because this is another troubling development now with the Nats. But why didn't Finnegan pitch that top of the 10th inning? So under normal circumstances, it would have been him. You're in a tie game at home, extra innings, you go to your closer. There's nothing left to save him for. And the problem is he didn't even arrive back at the ballpark till about 5.15, apparently. His wife just had twins. Obviously, that's, you know, a big momentous uh, event in their lives. And it sounds like he just had not had a chance to pick up a ball and throw and play catch and any of that stuff. And I think they just didn't want to have to throw him back into the fire that quickly into that kind of spot. Now, it does beg the question of, well, why was he activated if he wasn't ready? Give him another day. But perhaps the combination of that with the move we're going to talk about, which is Kyle McGowan going on the IL with an elbow sprain, you're not going to play a man down. So you you might as well just activate him at that point. And who knows if the game goes super long and you run out of relievers, you might have to use him. But that was unfortunate because you'd like to think that under normal circumstances, Finnegan would have been the one pitching the 10th, not both. All right. So with the McGowan move, this is another now alarming situation. We're dealing with this with Joe Ross, who for now is not getting Tommy John, but may ultimately need to get a second Tommy John. We'll see. The Nats put Kyle McGowan on the 10-day injured list on Friday, retroactive to September 1st with a right UCL sprain. And anyone who's a baseball fan, when you read those letters in succession, UCL, you get the heebie-jeebies because you know what that means, potentially anyway. Tommy John surgery. Now, it's not definite that Kyle McGowan will need Tommy John. You know, it's not like Kyle McGowan got shellacked in his last outing and something was obviously wrong. He last pitched in that 12-6 loss to Philadelphia at Nationals Park on Tuesday night. Top of the eighth faces three batters, gets the final two outs. Now, he did miss more than a month, July 11th to August 22nd on the 10-day injured list due to a right bicep strain. The biceps is not the elbow. We understand that. I don't know if there is some correlation somehow with one or the other, but Right UCL sprain is a frightening thing to hear, and I guess we'll just have to cross our fingers as we did with Joe Ross and hope that maybe McGowan doesn't have to undergo the Tommy John, but that's not a good sign when you hear that, right UCL sprain. Yeah, obviously that's a major concern when that happens. So he's going to see a specialist and they'll decide a course of action for it, but it is a sprain and uh, a sprain is a tear by definition, doesn't mean it's a full tear, at least a partial tear. And the thing with that, like you said, the biceps injury that he had first, and then he comes back and he pitched five times in eight days off the IL. And I know a lot of people have looked at this and and they worry that Davey and, and Jim Hickey and even previous pitching coaches who have been here have burned up a lot of these relievers using them so much and often they end up getting hurt. And I get that. What I would counter with is this is where we, we've talked about this before. The rotation being as poor as it's been and unable to go deeper into games is what adds all this stress to the bullpen. If your starters are only going four or five innings every night, then you have to use four or five relievers every night. And so there's no way to avoid pitching guys five times in eight days. And inevitably, some of these things happen. Now, it's not to say that this was a result of his usage. It may not be. Sometimes these things just happen. But obviously, you miss that much time, you come back, and then you have to pitch that much in the span of about a week, you're going to wonder if that had anything to do with it. And so I continue to say, well, one of two things. One, they've got to next year 
have at least another starter, if not multiple starters, who can give you six innings. I think it just makes such a difference if you have that. But secondly, they may need to think more about having relievers who can go multiple innings. And some guys who are more like the failed starter who is going to pitch two or three innings at a time to take the pressure off so that it's not always four relievers for four innings or even four relievers for three and a third innings, which often seems to happen, things like that. They're going to all wear down if they have to be used as much as they're being used. Well, we did see a Nats reliever go multiple innings on Friday night, and man, did he end up having some kind of an outing. Patrick Murphy, the guy who the Nats claimed off waivers from Toronto, two scoreless innings with five strikeouts in this game. He tossed a scoreless and hitless top of the six with two strikeouts, a three-pitch strikeout of Javier Baez, and a seven-pitch strikeout of Michael Conforto, despite Conforto having been ahead of the count at 1.30. And then Murphy tossed a scoreless top of the seventh with three strikeouts. Now, he did give up back-to-back one-out singles in the inning, but his strikeout victims in the inning included Francisco Lindor and Pete Alonso. So, you know, Murphy, we know kind of the deal with him. He's a flamethrower. He's also a guy who's uh, dealt with injury problem. He's dealt with control issues. But man, so far, I know he hasn't been perfect, but we're seeing like why this guy was a fairly well-regarded prospect with the Blue Jays. You know, Patrick Murphy was the Blue Jays' number 16 prospect per MLB pipeline at the time of the waiver claim there made by the Nats. Also, Sam Clay tossed a scoreless top of the eighth. I actually feel like Sam Clay's been better since he came back from AAA. He he did not go to the same AAA school that Wander Suero apparently went to. And uh, Ryan Harper tossed a scoreless top of the ninth. Nats' bullpen was good until that Austin Voth outing. Yeah, I liked what I saw from Murphy, and you're right. I mean, you watch him, and you can see what everybody sees in him. The stuff is legit. It's just a matter of uh, controlling it and, um, you know, not giving away free passes and not falling behind the count and all that. I mean, he wound up throwing 39 pitches in two innings. 39 pitches, 25 strikes. That's pretty good, all things considered. And maybe that is somebody who can give you multiple innings like we were just talking about, and that makes a difference because you don't have to use as many guys. Had this game just been regulation, they only would have used three relievers, and that's okay. You can get by with that. So that was good. I agree. Sam Clay's been a lot better since he came back from AAA. Throwing strikes, not falling behind the count, has been much better against lefties. So, uh, you know, that's good. Uh, Ryan Harper had the scoreless ninth to uh, help set the stage for a potential rally in the bottom of the ninth. And there are intriguing pieces in this bullpen. But as much as they have to pitch and as inexperienced as they are, you're going to have blowups. It's just inevitable. You know, law of averages says that one out of every four guys who comes into pitch is going to have a rough one. And too often that's costing them games. So to me, the fewer relievers you can use per game, the better off they're going to ultimately be. And maybe these guys, you know, pitching, say, three times a week instead of five times a week, uh, it's ultimately going to be better for them and better for the team. It would be nice. But the complete collapse of the Nationals rotation is why that's the case. I mean, I think everybody's aware of that by now. The complete collapse of the rotation is why Sean Nolan on Friday night made his fourth start for the Nats. Although I will give him credit. He's done a good job over these last two outings. Like all things considered, Sean Nolan's been solid. And Nolan in this 6-2-10 inning loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Friday night, two runs in five innings. Given the circumstances, I think you take that from Sean Nolan. I mean, Sean Nolan, people got to remember this. He had not pitched in a major league regular season game since October 2015 until this season. This is another one of these reclamation projects who the Nationals have had to lean on this year. But he's been good now in each of his last two starts. Again, it's all relative. But in this game, he gives up five hits. The uh, bloop triple gave up three doubles. But one of those doubles was a bloop double. Also gave up a single. Had three strikeouts. Only issued one walk. Did issue a hit by pitch. He did throw a lot of pitches, 102 pitches over the five innings. But I tell you what, he showed some toughness too in this game. So he gives up a run in the top of the second on a one-out opposite field bloop double by Javier Baez to shallow right field, followed by a one-out RBI single by Michael Conforto. The single deflecting off Nolan's like left deltoid area. Nolan's a lefty, so hitting him on his pitching arm, he gets dropped to the mound. Two balls, two strikes, the pitch. Swing and a shot deflected off. Nolan goes into center field and he's down on the mound. Up with the ball is Thomas, rounding third, coming in to score is Baez. Now Nolan up on his feet. Appear to be a glancing blow. I'm not sure where it got him. 
you know, if you just watch the thing in real time and don't see a replay, it almost looks like he gets hit on the head or in the face. So it was kind of a scary moment. But he stays in the game, does then give up a third consecutive hit, a one-out double by Kevin Pilar. But Nolan did then record the second and third outs in the inning and ended up giving the Nats, again, two runs in five innings. Knowing that this is a guy, who, again, who hadn't pitched in a major league regular season game since October of 2015, uh, <laughs> I think you take two runs in five innings from Sean Nolan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I also, you know, from a distance watching it, was worried that he was hitting the head. And that was a scary moment when he goes down and, you know, was back up and he threw the warm-up pitch. But you, as you watch the replays of it, you're thinking to yourself, okay, he may be like running on adrenaline right now, but eventually this thing's going to really start to hurt when it's your pitching arm that that happens to. And to his credit, he's gutted it out after that and throws 102 pitches, like you said, in five innings. And, you know, the thing that impresses me is he's now made three of his four starts against the Mets. So they know him. There's no mystery factor there anymore. And he's actually been better, arguably, each start against them. So that's good if he can show that he can do that, you know, when a team obviously knows what to expect from him. So good for him. And obviously, he's part of the rotation now. He's not going anywhere. And uh, thankfully, he won't have to face the Mets anymore. Get to see him against somebody else. Well, the Nationals will be facing the Mets again and again and again over these next few days. We have a double header on Saturday. Game 1, 105. Game 2, 605. We know that Eric Fetty is starting Game 1. He'll be opposing Marcus Stroman. We don't have an official starter for Game 2. I know there's been a lot of speculation about who this might be. Who do you think it's going to be? Well, let's first talk about who it's not going to be, okay? Because the bigger names that people are wondering about. Kate Cavalli is scheduled to start on Saturday for Rochester. Sorry, everybody, but they're not going to make that move just yet. Seth Romero is also in Rochester. He's not going to be called up yet. They still need him to build his innings up. He missed most of the year with injuries. It was officially like on a rehab assignment at Fredericksburg and now is just finally at AAA for the first time in his career. So we may see him before it's all said and done, but he needs some more time to do that. And so I think who that leaves as the most likely candidate would be a guy by the name of Josh Rogers, who was an Oriole at one point, was picked up by the Nats after the season began. It just kind of works out that he's on schedule. He's done all right there. He was originally scheduled to start Friday for Rochester and wound up not making that start. And well, I haven't gotten it confirmed. I think the I was told that he is certainly an option for this one. They were probably waiting to see how it went uh, in Friday's game with the bullpen. And, you know, they'll see how it goes Saturday. If somehow Eric Fetty goes seven innings in the opener in a complete game, then maybe they say we can get by with a bullpen game. But my hunch would be that Josh Rogers is most likely to get the call. And, you know, <laughs> we're, we're going to be seeing some guys who we weren't expecting and hadn't heard much about and probably aren't really part of the long-term plan around here. But for now, it's about who you have that's available to you that can maybe give you some innings. And in a seven-inning game, you don't have to go that far. So give them four, keep the game close, and and hope the bullpen can do the rest. Yeah, uh, I can talk about Josh Rogers a little bit. He was uh, taken by the Yankees in the 11th round of the 2015 MLB draft. He has not pitched in a major league regular season game since 2019. During his time with the O's, over 26 innings, had an ERA of 865, and the pitching-starved Orioles saw fit to part ways with Josh Rogers. He was actually one of the guys who the O's got back in a Zach Britton trade in July of 2018 when uh, the O's dealt Britton to the Yankees. But yeah, you know what? We're used to this by now, whether it's Paolo Espino or Sean Nolan or Josh Rogers or you know, whoever you want to name, we're getting used to all kinds of names. Alberto Baldonado. You know, I, I was hoping we'd see some Baldonado on Friday night. We did not. But yeah, such is life here at this point in uh, the season. Do you think we might see Cavalli? I, I never really anticipated this weekend. Do you think we'll see Seth Romero? Because it kind of feels like, you know, they bumped him up to AAA, even though his numbers weren't exactly sparkling at AA. He had good strikeout numbers, but the ERA wasn't impressive. It kind of feels like the Nats are you know, hey, kid, we need you to start producing for us here. Maybe they're trying to expedite the process. Do you think we'll see Seth Romero at the major league level this month? I think if he can show that he can pitch every fifth day and build his arm up and give him five plus innings and have some semblance of effectiveness, yeah, because he is somebody you do want to take a look at. You know, he he may not be an elite prospect at this point, given everything that he's been through, but you know, he was a first round pick and he's still young enough that you aren't going to totally give up on him because of all the first round picks they've had at the moment, he might be the number one bust among those because of off the field issues, because of injuries. 
And the rare times that he has pitched just hasn't been that effective. He did finally make his major league debut last year as a reliever. It was a couple appearances before he then got hurt again. So, yeah, I think if he shows he's healthy, is pitching every fifth day, has at least a little bit of success, I would think that we may see him here at some point. There's nothing, no harm in doing that. And like we said the other day, remember, even though the rosters are only 28 in September, the AAA season runs all the way through the end of the major league season, so they can send guys up and down. And it's not like, well, if you're not here the first week of September, that's it. You have no chance to make it up later on. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. You can always email us, natchatpodcast at gmail.com. Eric Fussfield wrote us. He says, if there is a Sports Illustrated curse, could there be such a thing as a Nats chat blessing? Paolo Espino had one of his best starts of the year on Thursday, contributing both on the mound and at the plate right off of his appearance on the podcast. Maybe booking Patrick Corbin on the program could turn his fortunes around. I like your thinking, Eric. I think you may be onto something. But Eric does ask a good question. So he gets into this idea of what we've talked about, the dangers of big money contracts, right? Paying guys in their 30s for what they did in their 20s. But Eric writes, after watching Bryce Harper pummel the Nats all year long, I'm wondering, are there some instances where it's okay to spend big money for the long term, even without any guarantees about the player's health and productivity five to 10 years down the road? In Harper, I see a guy who has a 400-plus on-base percentage for the second year in a row, is leading the majors in OPS and OPS+. Plus, plus he consistently destroys the Nats, which adds salt to the wound. If Harper is not worth a contract of 10 years or more, then presumably Juan Soto won't be either when the time comes. But if that's the case, who is? I appreciate your thoughts. How would you answer that? Well, here's what I'd say. Yes, there are, uh, I would say, a handful of players who absolutely are worth the mega contracts that you don't even think twice about it. And I would put Bryce Harper in that category. And let's remember, the Nats offered him $300 million, 10 for 300. Now, you can say that that offer was made knowing he was going to turn it down because it was that close to free agency and was always just going to go to free agency and see what the best offer was. And the Nats decided they were going to move on once he turned it down. But, you know, if somehow he had said yes, they were perfectly comfortable giving him that deal. And the difference between Bryce and Juan Soto and let's say Trey Turner, Anthony Rendon, some others, is they were so young when they hit free agency. Bryce was 26, Soto's going to be 26, that yes, the Phillies are still going to have Bryce under contract till he's like 39 because it's such a long deal. But you take the back end of that contract and you say, well, we're just going to live with whatever he is at that point because we're still getting five, six years of him in his prime, in his late 20s and early 30s. And so you say, this will be worth it. You're not signing him once he's already kind of past his peak. And so that's why I've said all along here that I understand their thinking with Trey and maybe not believing that he was worth $250, $300 million because he's going to turn 30 in his first year in a new contract. But Juan Soto, to me, absolutely is worth it because he's several years younger and would hit free agency at 26. So to me, yes, you do make the mega deal for someone like him. Also, I just think his skills aren't going away. I mean, Juan Soto is going to have a great eye and be a good hitter for a long, long time. Bryce, I was a little concerned because more so for the body. I mean, we've seen his body go through a lot, wear and tear, and not sure if that was going to hold up in the long run. So far, he's done fine in that regard. 
But in Juan Soto's case, I really don't have those concerns at this point. Yeah, so Bryce has been good for the Phillies over the first three seasons of that contract. That is true. And maybe, just maybe, it comes to be that the Nats should have signed Bryce Harper. But the reason to champion the Nats not having re-signed Bryce, and I certainly champion the Nats not re-signing Bryce, wasn't an age thing. It was a production thing. He wasn't as good as Scott Boris liked to say that Harper was. Harper was a good player for the Nationals. He had an all-world season in 2015. Everyone knows that. But outside of that season, there was a lot of inconsistency. And while the overall numbers, especially like the rate stats, were good, he was not the elite player that people thought he might be, that he was you know, said to be by some. He missed a good bit of time due to injury. He had issues defensively. And not that war is everything, but go back and look at Bryce Harper's season-by-season wars during his time with the Nationals. They're very underwhelming. You know, once you put aside 2015, we thought that 2015 was the start of, okay, now he's just going to go on a tear in which he's an MVP candidate every season. No, 2015 was the outlier for Bryce Harper with the Nationals. 2015 was not like a new normal with Bryce Harper. And so he had a lot of sub-two-war seasons with the Nationals. He had a lot of seasons in which he missed time. You know, it's not that he was a bad player for the Nats. Obviously, he's not a bad player. But was he a player worthy of a $300-plus million contract, which we knew was what it was going to take? That's why I do believe the Nats made that offer to Bryce, knowing he wouldn't accept the offer, especially when you factor in all the deferred money. So that's the argument with Bryce. The Bryce argument is not an age issue. With Trey, it's more of an age issue. The argument with Bryce is he's good, but he wasn't so good to where you're like, he's a must-resign. Juan Soto, Every season has been an excellent hitter for the Nationals. You can't say that about Bryce Harper during his time with the Nets. Yeah, no, you're right. The difference between Soto and Harper is consistency. Harper's peaks when he's on, he is fantastic. But as we know, it gets really streaky within seasons and from season to season. And there's also always the question of how good is his defense, really? And how much does he care about his defense at times? Now, you know, that hasn't really been a problem for him uh, in Philly. He's been better there. He's still got the great arm that he loves to show off. But we've seen Soto get better at his defense over the years, as opposed to Harper, who's maybe peaked defensively early on when he was young and thin and, you know, running around all over the place. You know, Harper kind of over time became a power hitter. That was sort of his big thing. And Juan, I think, is a little bit more of a complete hitter. Obviously, he hits for power. Um, but still wants to be a good base runner, a good uh, fielder, and all that stuff. So, you know, I would have been okay with signing Harper for 300. I don't think that would have been a mistake on their part. But I do think Soto is a generational player, and he is the one you make the exception for. Yes, there's always risk in giving that that kind of contract to anybody because you never know what the long term is going to be. But I just feel like there's no doubt that Juan Soto, as long as he stays healthy, is going to be a consistently excellent hitter for a long time. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. Uh, I hope that the Nats aggressively try to make Soto an offer he can't refuse. You know, a Tatis-like offer, maybe they have already, but uh, you know, it's something that I think they do need to do. One more thing on Harper, too. Always remember the number of teams bidding for his services in that free agency offseason were not many. He got humbled in free agency. He lingered in free agency. It basically ended up being the Phillies the Giants to an extent, and the Dodgers, but the Dodgers did not want to do a long-term deal. They wanted to do one of these short-term high AAV deals. That's telling. The industry spoke on Harper and said, we like you, but we don't love you. And what Bryce did that shocked a lot of people around baseball, he took the 13-year contract without any opt-outs in it. And the thought, everyone immediately was like, why wouldn't he take an opt-out? That's what all these big-time clients do right now. Why wouldn't he take it? And the answer was, he never flat out said it, but the sense I've gotten from other people about it and just knowing him a little bit myself, he didn't want to ever have to go through that again. That free agency process was not at all what he thought it was going to be. He was humbled. You're right. And in the end, it was like, all right, where am I going to play for the rest of my career? I don't want to ever have to think about this again. And that's why he took that deal with no opt-outs. And you're right. The Phillies were the only one that aggressively went after him to that extent. And then at his introductory press conference, he talked about bringing a championship to Washington, D.C., mistakenly. And sure enough, a championship did come to Washington, D.C. in 2019. We want to bring a title back to D.C. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can always email us to Nats Chat Podcast 
at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the pod, please consider doing so. Uh, we appreciate if you do. Subscribing costs you nothing. This is where the podcast is always there waiting for you when you wake up in the morning. Also, if you have uh, some time on this Labor Day weekend uh, and haven't yet given the podcast a five-star rating and written just like a one or two-sentence review saying how much you like the pod, please consider doing that. That helps out a lot, and we thank everyone who has done that or will do that. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. You can also get yourself a Secret Weapon t-shirt. Our guy did so well in his most recent outing, really his last two outings. You can get your shirts at natschatpodcast.square. That site. And speaking of the secret weapon t-shirt, we want to send out a special salute right now to our guy Chandler, who we saw a photo of wearing the secret weapon t-shirt at Nationals Park. This is a guy, Mark, you tell me if I'm wrong here. He gets up at 3 a.m. every morning and is listening to the Nats Chat podcast. That's what he told me. He was right down by the dugout during batting practice. He shouted out my name. I turned around and saw him. He showed me the shirt. He said he's a loyal listener. He's up at 3 a.m. every day listening. I said, oh, you might be one of the first ones. He says, nah, I think there are a few in Europe that are ahead of him as we've been trying to figure out. I know we heard from one person somewhere in Europe that we think might be the first listener every morning. He didn't tell me if he's getting up at 3 so that he can listen to it or if he just has to get up at 3 o'clock anyways for whatever reason and he's glad that it's available to him at 3 a.m. I hope it's that and not the latter because if anybody – is losing sleep and waking up super early just to listen to us, I think you need to reevaluate your priorities in life as much as we do appreciate it. So thank you, Chandler. We do appreciate it. And uh, good to see you here at the ballpark tonight. And just to be clear, he's waking up at 3 a.m. He's not getting home at 3 a.m. Is that correct? He didn't specify, but it sounded like he was waking up at 3. That's what it sounded like to me. Although, tell you what, if he was at this game all the way to the end, that was, what, almost 11 o'clock before it ended. So is he, let us know, Chandler, were you up at three? Were you up four hours after the game ended listening to this this uh, podcast on Saturday morning? Let us know. Well, whether you're getting up at three or getting home at three, whatever you happen to be doing at 3 a.m., we don't judge on this podcast. We're happy to have you on board. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. From Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. And we leave you with another one of our Tales of October 2019. This tale comes to us from Robert Krakauer of Rockville, Maryland. Hey guys, it's Robert Krakauer from Rockville. It's hard to pinpoint just one memory from October of 2019, but I want to keep this short and sweet. I have attended two of the three Game 5s at Nats Park, including the Pete Cosma game, and could not stand to miss the Wild Card game as I was out of college and had money for the first time. I spent the week leading up to the game hounding my father to attend it with me, even though we would both have to wake up for work the next day. He vacillated it, only agreed two days before the game. When he agreed, my stomach sank. I felt awful about depriving him of a good night's sleep just to watch another heartbreaking Nats loss in a do-or-die game. We all know how the game went. It was certainly the greatest sporting event I have attended, and I have been at all the big ones in D.C. for the last 15 years. The funny part is, from our seats in right center field in front of the scoreboard, we could not see the right fielders all game. They were blocked by seats from our angle. We jumped for joy when Soto got the hit, and I will never forget the beer being sprayed in the air. What an incredible moment and scene to be a part of. It was not until the train ride home, however, that we discovered what had transpired in right field. A man on the train coming from work said, you guys must have been going crazy when Grisham misplayed that ball. We looked at him in bewilderment, and he informed us of the crucial detail of the greatest sporting event of my life. Life is crazy, isn't it? Lastly, I would like to say, in Rizzo, we trust. Now Hudson with a 2-2 pitch. Hey, and a miss! Blows him away with a 98-mile-an-hour fastball! What a way here in the ninth inning! The Nationals, two outs away from a trip to Los Angeles! Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.